Well, indeed, we have the privilege of coming to God's Word again together. Let's bow together in a word of prayer as we approach God's Word. Father, we ask that you would please open the eyes of our heart that we may see the wonderful things that are in your Word. May you draw us to your Word and most importantly, draw us to yourself through your Word. We recognize that your revelation to us is not an end in and of itself, but is a means to relationship with you. And I pray that you would lead us in that way this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you think through all the great leaders of history and you think about whether or not the mother who carried that leader knew of what her son was going to accomplish, the reality is, is that for all the great leaders, their mother did not know what was going to come of their son, what, what he's going to accomplish. Now, certainly there were many mothers who knew that they were carrying potentially a future king in those uh, dynasties in which a, uh, a son would be born to the king and he would be the next one to fill the throne. But to know exactly what the impact of that king was going to be or the significance of his reign was completely unknown. And that goes for any of the great world leaders. It takes decades of their life and their rulership to be able to see uh, what their impact would be. I mean, just think about Take someone like Winston Churchill, for example. No one knew the role that he would play in world history when his mother found out that she was pregnant, or even after he was born, or even 20 years into his life. It took decades to ultimately reveal how he would be used. And the same could be said for people like Abraham Lincoln, or Julius Caesar, or the list could go on. And so, but there is only one king whose greatness was known even before his conception. And therefore, there is only one mother in all human history who knew while her son was growing in utero that he would be king of the entire world. That moment that the mother found out the destiny of her son is recorded for us in the passage before us. And so if you are not there already, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1, the gospel of Luke chapter 1. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, I invite you to take the Bible that's in the pew rack directly in front of you, and you can turn to page 1016 and find our verses for us this morning. We began to see these verses, look at these verses last week, and in them we're seeing how God through the angel and the recording work of Luke, the author, that the man Jesus was unlike anybody else. Jesus was not just some great guy or some inspiring leader that showed up in first century Israel. He was sent by God in order to fulfill his mission of bringing salvation to the world. Let's read these verses before us. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. 
In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, in this text, we've been looking at four reasons uh, why the child born to Mary was unlike anyone else. Four reasons why the child born to Mary was unlike anyone else. And as we see this uniqueness of Jesus, it should cause us to give our lives to him. For no one else is worthy of our allegiance. The, the purpose of the book of Luke is to declare and show Jesus Christ as the, the one who brings salvation to all. Therefore, calling all people to repent of their sin and to trust wholly in Him. And he begins that here in chapter 1 by showing first the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, and the promise of His coming. And then here in the promise and the announcement of Jesus Christ and His coming so that he might prompt his readers, and including us today, to repent and to trust wholly in Jesus Christ. The first reason that we saw for why Jesus was unlike anybody else from this text is the special messenger that was sent. The special messenger, and we saw this in verses 26 and 28 that we looked at last week. This angel was sent to a woman named Mary in a town of Galilee, a region of the northern part of Israel. And Mary was a virgin. She was betrothed to Joseph, meaning that she was legally committed to him. And so they were seen as committed and as, as bound together as we would see a married couple today. But they had not yet consummated the marriage that would take place a year later. And so thus she is still a virgin the angel enters into the room where Mary is at and greets her, telling her that she's favored of the Lord. And yet, this seems to frighten Mary, and she's not quite sure 
what's going on. And the angel then tells her that God, in his favor, has chosen to give her a son, that she would conceive and that she would bear a son and his son's name would be Jesus. And so this special messenger comes to announce this wonderful news to Mary. And even though an angel had gone to Zechariah and announced the coming of John the Baptist in the passage previous, we see a uniqueness even in this coming of Gabriel to Mary in that he tells her several times of Mary's favor. He says, you are favored of the Lord. The Lord is with you. And in that reassuring the specialness of Mary and the uniqueness of what God was telling Mary through the angel. And so we can see that Jesus is unlike anyone else, first of all, because of the special messenger sent to announce his birth. But secondly, we saw in verses 29 through 33, his special destiny. The special destiny, what he came to do, what set him apart from everybody else. And so I ask you, do you you know why Jesus arrived on earth? Do you know why Jesus came? You see, he did not arrive simply to do some good deeds. He did not come just to give some lectures on morality. And in one sense, he didn't just come to save you from your sin and then leave again. The angel here reveals his ultimate destiny, the fullness of what Jesus came to do. And we see this beginning in verse 29, as we see that the, the seeing the, the greeting to Mary, troubled Mary, and she's wondering what this could be about. And the angel then reassures her, telling her to not be afraid, and that she was going, is the recipient of God's grace. That, recip, that receiving of God's grace was seen in the fact that she, as a virgin, will give birth to the Messiah, give birth to the highly anticipated King of Israel. It's clear from the language of the angel here, comparing it with the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that this, the angel is equating this with the promise given to Israel of the Messiah being born. For Isaiah 7.14 says that a virgin would conceive and bear the son, the one who would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now his Messiahship, the fact that this is that promised one, that special one promise from days of old through Israel's prophets, is further seen in the descriptions that the angel continues to give of this son of Mary. Verse 32 says that he will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. He will be great, possessing unqualified greatness. And why will he be great? Well, he'll be great because he will be called the Son of the Most High. 
He's going to have an intimate relationship with God Most High that sets him apart from everyone else. He would be God's son. This is the Son of God appearing before men for the very first time. And so the angel continues to reveal the uniqueness of Jesus by then declaring what his destiny will be. What will this great one, what will this Son of the Most High do? What's his mission? And it's expressed in three statements. And we began looking at these last week. We see in the, end, the second half of verse 32, the angel continues and says, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. So first we see his destiny expressed in the fact that he will reign on David's throne. Now, if Mary had any doubt up to this point of whether her son would be that promised Messiah, she now knew for sure. Because the Old Testament had prophesied time and again of a coming son of David who would sit upon the throne. And as we looked at last week, this was all stemming from a promise that God had given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And as I noted last week, 2 Samuel 7 is one of those great high points in the Old Testament, in your Bibles, for you to mark in your mind in terms of putting the whole story of the Bible together. 2 Samuel 7 represents one of those high watermarks, understanding the, the promise given to David and his descendants. What is sometimes labeled and known as the Davidic covenant. Because this clarified the promise that was really given back all the way in Genesis chapter 3. Because if you remember, it was there in Genesis 3 that mankind first fell. And they sinned against God, rebelled against their creator. And God is then cursing them for their disobedience. And the whole creation is put under a curse. But his words there are not without hope, for he promises that there would be an offspring of the woman who would come and would crush the head of the serpent, crush the offspring of the serpent, representing Satan and his work against the Lord. So there's the promise of, of a deliverer, a promise of one who would come and reverse the curse, one who would set man free from this curse that they were hearing about there in Genesis 3. And as you go through the Old Testament, that promise is further clarified. Where is this one going to show up? Who is it going to be? And we get further clarification that it's through the line of Abraham, as Abraham is specifically called out in Genesis chapter 12. And his family is set apart. And that God was going to make his name great and build him into a nation and give him a land. And that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Blessing was going to flow through Abraham. But we need some further clarification. Because as we find out, Abraham's family grows to be quite big. And they multiply greatly as God commanded. And God blesses them. But where exactly is this promised one going to come? And while there are indications in, 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 in 
Genesis 49, that it's going to be from the tribe of Judah. And we further get clarification, though, as we land in 2 Samuel 7, that this promised Messiah would come through the line of David. And God promised that He would place a son upon the throne of David to reign forever. And that that son would be as a son to him and he would be a father to him. And that his kingdom, his throne, would be forever. And as we have that promise in 2 Samuel 7, and then you continue to chart Old Testament history. And just as you, you read the stories, right? The stories of all the kings, uh, from starting with Solomon, the, the son of David who reigned after David, all the way down through until the exile and even post-exile, we see rulers who fail to meet the description and fail to reign forever, as God had promised. They were kings who sat upon the throne, but they were not the promised king. They were not born of a virgin. They were not a mighty God, a wonderful counselor, everlasting father who would reign forever. And so they waited for a king who would bring righteousness into the land, who would be righteous and would bring righteousness. But here, in the angel's words to Mary, he declares that Jesus would be that promised king. I can't imagine just Mary trying to take that in. I mean, if there's, if there's anything that Israel was talking about and waiting for is this promised Messiah, this great one that, that all of Israel's hopes were resting in. And even though there, there may have been, as we'll see as we go through the Gospels, uh, some misplaced hope in terms of what they're hoping the Messiah to do, and they, they missed some key prophecies about the Messiah's sufferings. And, but they were all waiting for this promised one. And here, Mary finds out that she has been chosen to carry that, that Davidic son, that special one sent from God to bless Israel and through Israel bless the world. And that leads us to the second statement of the Messiah's destiny, of Jesus' destiny. Not only will he sit on the throne of his father David, but he will reign, verse 33, over the house of Jacob forever. He'll reign over Israel the Jewish Messiah will reign over the Jewish people. This is the simple meaning of this statement. Jacob, as you know, was one of the two sons of Isaac and Rebekah that we read about in Genesis. They had 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel because God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And it is thus from him that Israel received its name. Now, the Messiah's kingdom is a large biblical theme. Books with a lot of pages have been written about this theme of the kingdom. And we are going to expound that as we go through our study of the Gospel of Luke. But the point for us to see today is that the Messiah's kingdom is ruled by the Messiah, David's descendant, and that it's a kingdom with Israel at its center. But as the Gospel of Luke will show, that the coming of the Jewish Messiah is 
not just good news for the house of Jacob. It's not just good news for Israel, but it's good news for the whole world. That's why Luke's even writing this gospel, is because it's good news, it's a gospel that goes to all the nations. And as you remember, even back to that Abrahamic covenant that I mentioned earlier, that through the line of Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed, that blessing that goes to the world is going to be fulfilled through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. And so this is the reason it's good news for us. Because included in the promise to Abraham and then to David was an element that the blessing would flow to the whole world through Israel and particularly through David's son. And so we know that we as believers get to participate in the kingdom of Christ that will one day be established upon this earth. But one thing that, that cannot mean for, is that Israel is taken out of the picture. In other words, to see that the church gets to participate in the kingdom of Christ does not mean that Israel got booted out of the kingdom of Christ. The whole old, for the whole Old Testament, even here in this prophecy that we see here regarding Jesus' birth, to state that the Messiah's kingdom would be over the house of Jacob, there cannot be some interpretation that comes along and somehow denies Israel this promise. Israel's got to remain a recipient of this promise in some way, because you see, God's very character is at stake. If God speaks a truth, then he must carry out that word. And if God told Israel that he was going to place a king upon the throne of David, and that he was going to be, this kingdom was going to be over the house of Jacob forever, then house of Jacob can't be removed without causing damage to the word of the Lord. And so we state emphatically that the church has not replaced Israel in the promises of God. We share in the blessings with Israel, but God has chosen to use two distinct institutions, Israel and the church, to accomplish His divine purposes for all of history. And yes, we are all united by salvation through Christ. There is a unity between Israel and the church as, as salvation only comes through Jesus. But God is, has different plans for each of them. And so as Gabriel appears to a young Jewish woman in the first century Israel, it is only natural that the Jewish scriptures would be fulfilled through a Jewish Messiah coming to reign over the Jewish people. But that Jewish Messiah would bring blessing to the world. And for that, you and I rejoice, do we not? But we see that this reigning is not going to be a temporary, part-time thing, like every other king in the history of the world. But he, the third statement we see about his destiny is that he will reign forever. Forever. He, it says that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, in order for this kingdom to go on forever, then it must go on into eternity, right? It's, it's got to continue on and not stop. And yet we know that this world will pass away. We know that this world here is not forever. History will come to a close. But the kingdom of the Messiah will go on into eternity. And as we go through this book, we're going to get more clarity on the nature of this kingdom 
and how it relates with Israel and us as believers. But the important for thing, thing for us this morning is that deep down in each of us, we desire that this world would be set right. We want this world to be right. I mean, it's, it's the reason that people get so worked up about elections, because they want rulers, or they want people in charge to do the right thing. And, and there's great debate about who believes the right, what the right thing is, and that's the reason that there's uh, the fighting that goes on and discussions and whatnot, but that the single desire is there, right? A desire to see the right things done. I mean, can you, we can't even imagine a world in which righteousness dwells, in which there's righteousness all around. The leader, the one who's making decisions and calling the shots is of pure righteousness and justice. And yet we long for that. We want everyone to be kind to everyone. The, the, why can't everyone just get along, right? We want joy to be the experience of all people. We don't want to see anybody suffering. We want exploitation and evil to be done away with. And more personally, right, we want our own hearts to be made right. We struggle. We ache. The, the weariness of our sin and the, and, the, and the curse upon each one of us, the, the things that entangle us, we just want to be free. We want it all to be made right. We want to walk in holiness and righteousness. And friends, we're reminded that there's only one who is able and willing to do this. And his name is Jesus, who has prophesied and announced that he would be coming here. There will be a day when he will right every wrong and he will rule this world in justice. But until that day, we each can be saved from our sins. We can be given a new heart, a heart that desires truth and righteousness. And this path to life is found only in Jesus Christ, the promised Son here in this passage. We can only know that salvation, that new life, by repenting of our sins, by trusting in this Messiah. He saves us because He was crucified and He paid the penalty for the sins of those who would believe in Him. We each can know the joy of being forgiven today. So we've seen that in this passage, the first reason for the uniqueness of Jesus is the special messenger. The second is his special destiny of Jesus. The third reason that we see in this passage for the uniqueness of Jesus is his special conception. His special conception. We see this in verses 34 through 37. Look at verse 34 with me. The angel has just dumped some like big news on Mary, right? And so here we see Mary responding to that news. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? We continue to see the astounding realities of this promised one. And Mary is blown away herself. She, 
she needs some clarity because the promise is so great. The promise is so amazing that, that, that she needs some clarity of understanding how this is going to take place. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? The, the Greek actually reads, how will this be since I have not known a man? Knowing as a, as a biblical reference for, for intercourse and that intimacy that's found within marriage. She is not married, and yet, therefore, she's not married yet, and therefore, there's no humanly way, humanly speaking, for her to be impregnated. She recognizes that there's nothing in front of her, there's nothing in her power that she can do to bring about this promise. And this is what I believe contrasts it from Zechariah. Zechariah asked for a sign. How will I know this to be true? In other words, give me something that I could, that can help my belief. And in that, it showed his unbelief. It showed his lack of trusting the angel's words. But here, I believe that Mary, there is no, uh, there is no reproach from the, the angel to Mary for her question. And she seems to be simply asking, I don't have any means in front of me for fulfilling this promise. Can you let, let me in on some details of how this is going to take place? Zechariah could act. He could go home to his wife and see the Lord work, but Mary couldn't act in the same way. And so, in faith and in astonishment, she asks how this is going to be because she is not yet married and has remained pure. It seems that she expects this promise to be coming soon because one thing you could think is like, well, maybe... I'm, I'm betrothed to a man, and I'm going to consummate that marriage in a year or so, and so maybe God's going to bring me about a son through Joseph. I mean, she could have just assumed that. But that would be putting a significant time gap before this son would come. And so there seems that the angel, the Mary recognizes that this son is, is, is not waiting a year to come. This son is, is coming now. And so based upon Mary's question, the angel then reveals more of the astounding origin and the arrival of heaven's Son. Look at verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So how will Mary bear a child? The angel says the Holy Spirit was going to conceive a child in her. In this verse, we are given the closest explanation of the amazing reality of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. The doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ is crucial to understanding who Jesus is and why he was qualified to be our Savior. And this doctrine of the virgin conception and virgin birth of Christ was virtually unquestioned for most of the history of the church. But in the last two centuries, it has come under fire by those who doubt, who doubt the Scriptures and approach them with materialistic assumptions. And therefore, they rule out miracles found within this really began out of the enlightenment and, and the centrality of human reason in which what I perceive 
is the standard and the basis and the starting point for truth. What I see, what I perceive in the world is where I begin, and then I go to the Bible and see if that fits. And as we know, miracles and God working in this world goes outside of the bounds of the laws of nature. It's the Creator God working in His creation, and frankly, He can do whatever He wants, right? And so, it's, this doctrine is, fits within a supernaturalist understanding of Scripture. Now, the virgin birth of Christ is not a doctrine that we necessarily need to uh, frontline our gospel presentations with so that an unbeliever must believe in the virgin birth of Christ before they can be saved. But it's, it must be believed for the Christian to hold the right teaching of the Word of God. If we are going to have a right understanding, an orthodox understanding of Scripture, we must hold this to be true because the Bible tells it to us. And to reject it is to disbelieve God's Word. Now, it's important to clarify what this text doesn't say. First of all, this text in which it says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you is not sexual language. There's some that have tried to say that there is, this is God coming and having intercourse with Mary and impregnating her, that sort of thing, and finding that in this verse, it's not here. In fact, this is what the Mormons believe. This text also does not describe the Immaculate Conception, which is a Roman Catholic doctrine that claims that Mary was conceived sinless. So you might hear that term, and sometimes it might apply to this, but they are using it to refer to the conception of Mary, which is nowhere found in Scripture and has no biblical support. Neither does this text teach another Roman Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, that they say that, that Mary was virgin, a virgin throughout her entire life, and there is no biblical warrant for that belief either. Uh, there's clear indications that Jesus had half-brothers and sisters, and therefore uh, they are other children of Mary that, we, uh, that she had with Joseph. But rather, what this text does teach is that the power, with the power of the Most High, the Holy Spirit would come upon and overshadow Mary, and she would conceive a son within her. This is mystery. What exactly did the Holy Spirit do? We don't have the science behind it. There is no science explained in this text. It's enshrouded in this, this beautiful language of mystery as the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary and overshadows her and enables a son to be conceived within her. Now, the Son would be called holy, the angel says. The Son of God. Notice the therefore. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. What that therefore tells us is that because of the work of the Most High, because of the, the, the Holy Spirit's work in Mary and bringing about the conception of a son, therefore this child will be called Holy, the Son of God. There's a linkage be between who he is and what he's, uh, his identity and his, his essence and with his arrival, how he comes, which is by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we can see even in this verse that Jesus was not just a human being as we are. And he was not just a moral man who 
had some good teachings. He was not simply a revolutionary. He was the Son of the Most High. He was the Son of God. And that is seen here even at His conception. The indications that this is God the Son arriving upon earth. And it will be revealed time and time again throughout His ministry. Now, it's important to know that Jesus is not the only one called the Son of God in the Bible. In, flat, in fact, I want you to flip to two chapters to the right, to Luke chapter 3, verse 38. The last verse of chapter 3. And it says, this is the end of the genealogy that Luke gives. And so as he's continuing this line, the son of, the son of, the son of, verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam here is called the son of God. Now some will point to this and say that, therefore, the title son of God to Jesus was not unique and did not indicate deity at all. And I don't think that is true. What I think the two have in common is showing a linkage that together they were both fathered by God in a unique way. They were both brought into the world without sin and they are both truly human. But there are huge contrasts between the two, right? Adam was fallible and he did fall, whereas Jesus was sinless and remains so. He's holy, as this verse says. Adam, Adam led humanity into sin and Jesus saved humanity out of sin. And this is a, a contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam that is made throughout the Scriptures, particularly in Romans. Paul emphasizes this. And so even though Jesus is the Son of God in a way that connects him to Adam, he's a Son of God in a unique way that separates him from Adam as well. This is God the Son. We know this from the conception of the Holy Spirit, the initiative by God the Father and the working of God the Spirit to bring about the arrival of God the Son in the human flesh shows us the Trinity at work in the incarnation. He's called holy. He's pure. He's sinless. He's undefiled in the ultimate sense. He's set aside for service unto God. And there were indications all throughout the Old Testament that this Messiah who would come would be divine. Remember, even that prophecy hinted at in, in the angel's words that, behold, a virgin would come. A virgin would conceive and would, would bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us, indicating that this one born of the virgin, this one born outside of normal human circumstances, was going to be God with us. And later on in Isaiah chapter 9, that this, this one was going to be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This son of David who would have such titles could only be the divine son of God. Now, as we see here in this verse is the divine conception, divine, uh, uh, or divine um, uh, the, um, virgin birth and virgin conception of Jesus, there are four reasons why this doctrine is important for us today. The first is that this virgin birth was a sign God chose to signal Jesus as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Again, as I 
was been saying about the Isaiah chapter 7 prophecy. That was to be a sign to Israel that God was bringing about a fulfillment of His promise to David. And so the virgin birth signals that to the first century and it signals it to us today. To know that Jesus is the qualified one to sit upon David's throne and one day he will return to this earth and sit upon his throne here to reign and rule over this world in righteousness. And so the fact that he was virgin born ties it into that Davidic promise which tells us that he is the rightful one to sit upon that throne and therefore it prompts our our hope of the future, our hope of Christ's second coming. The virgin birth also we see was the means by which God brought his, the Savior into the world. Now he may have been able to bring his, his savior, the Savior into the world in some other way, we don't know, but we see that he chose to do it this way. He sent his Son to be Savior of the world through the virgin birth. But thirdly, we see that the virgin birth enabled the holy God to dwell with humanity. In Jesus, we have the mystery of divinity and humanity merged together. And there together in the person of Jesus Christ, we have 100% truly God and truly man. How did that work? We don't fully know. We stand back in awe of the mystery of these two natures of Christ. And yet, we believe what the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 14, that God the Son became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Son became flesh and dwelt among us, and He did this through the virgin birth. Fourthly, the fourth reason this is important is that the virgin birth displayed the power of God to work the impossible. And this leads us to verses 36 and 37. God can work the impossible. Mary needed to be reminded of that, and we need to be reminded of that. And the angel reminds us with the example of Elizabeth. Verse 36, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary doesn't ask for a sign or a confirmation like Zechariah did, but God gives her one. And the angel says, look at your relative Elizabeth. You may not know this. Its indications is Mary didn't know this already, and we know that that Elizabeth was hiding herself during the five months of her pregnancy. And here in the sixth month, then, the angel reveals this to Mary. And he tells it in order to, to gird up Mary's faith. To say, what I'm telling you is crazy, I know, is, is, is amazing, and it sounds impossible, but look over at your relative Elizabeth. That, would, that seemed impossible too, but with God, it's not, because God is almighty. And just as God worked amazing power in Elizabeth's life, He's going to work amazing power in your life, Mary. For all those who disbelieve the virgin birth could happen don't just have a faulty Christology, they have a faulty theology. They disbelieve the power of God. And when they can't believe that God can do these amazing, faith, these amazing things, it undercuts their faith everywhere. I mean, if you can't believe that God would send His Son through the virgin birth, then 
How can you believe that God created this world by speaking the words out of his mouth in six days? If you can't believe that God would send his Savior through the virgin birth, then how can you believe that he would raise his son from the dead? How can you believe that the the Red Sea is parted in two? How can you believe any of the supernatural things that are found in Scripture? And therefore, we must start with the Bible and see what it says, and that is the starting place for our faith. And so we see in this virgin conception and birth of Jesus, the stunning person of Jesus Christ. He is unlike anyone else in history. Only he is the one who is only and uniquely the divine son of God. Only he is truly human and truly divine and therefore able to truly save us. He needed to be human to identify with us and take our sins. He needed to be divine in order to accept and take the wrath of God on our behalf. He needed to be both and Jesus uniquely fills that. Only he can save us from our rebellion. Well, in this text, the final reason that we can see why Jesus is unique, and we see it in the, in the last verse here in the passage, is that it's his special mother. His special mother. Verse 38, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word, and the angel departed from her. This verse at times has almost brought me to tears at the beauty of Mary's simple words here. It's a statement of absolutely beautiful submission. There's no kicking and screaming. There's no fighting back. Here we see the mother of Jesus essentially bow before God and offer herself freely and happily to the will of God, no matter what may come of that. Her statements here express a rock-solid faith in the goodness of God. And here we have a young Galilean girl stand as an example for all of us. A model that all followers of Christ must have, and that is joyful submission to the Word of God and the will of God. Now, it's important to realize, though, that that our submission to God and His will and His Word does not guarantee a pain-free life. And that wasn't the case for Mary. As no doubt you've heard in the retellings of the Christmas story that uh, Mary, being a pregnant, unwed mother, would have caused murmurings and gossip to spread throughout the community. Those around her would have a hard time believing that she had been impregnated by the Holy Spirit. The inclination of their mind would be that she had been immoral. And therefore, the derision and attacks that she would receive were no doubt going to come. But that doesn't cause her pause. She has a greater value in submitting. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. I will do whatever it says. Let it be to me according to your word. Whatever you want, God, I want what you want. And she accepts whatever price to be used of the Lord. What an amazing mother for Jesus to be taught by in all those infancy years as she continued to direct his heart to his father. And in one sense, 
she foreshadows her son's devotion to his father. Just as Mary was devoted to the Lord, so Jesus will be obedient and submissive to his father. So let me close this morning asking by asking, how is your devotion to Jesus Christ? How is your love and your affection for him? Is it white hot with passion for the Lord or has it grown cold? You see, we need a constant renewed sight of God the Son. And this text helps us to see it. We need to look at all the facets of Jesus, including how he arrived and how God planned for him to enter our world. And for us to see that he is unlike anyone else. And therefore, he is worthy of our lives every second of every day. Let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you for the wonderful plan that you brought about in sending your Son to this earth to bring us salvation, to bring about redemption for humanity. And we thank you that as you sent the Jewish Messiah to the nation of Israel to set up a kingdom there, that we are able to receive blessing through this one, this one who was crucified on our behalf. And Father, may you help cultivate within us hearts of repentance and faith and submission to your word at every point, at every moment of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.